In the words of the Dread Pirate Roberts, I see the people are excited. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. You guys all remember the scene there in the movie? No, you're Princess Bride. Are you a child? Greatest movie ever. I don't know if I told you guys this before, but once, I think it was like seventh or maybe eighth grade, I was really sick for like two weeks, and um, the only movie we had in our house was The Princess Bride. So I watched it like four or five times a day for like two weeks. So pretty much in eighth grade, I had the whole thing memorized. Anyway, and life can be hard sometimes, huh? It's just, it's just the plain, plain truth. You know, for believers and unbelievers alike, you know, the, the simple reality is life can be difficult. And, and this is something that, that Jesus knew and, and understood very well. In fact, remember the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before the time of Christ, wrote that Jesus was a man of sorrow. That he was acquainted with grief. Right? Jesus understood the, the pain and the difficulties that come with living in this, in this fallen, broken world. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He says, we have a high priest who's able to relate with us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our struggle, with our pain. And he's able to relate because he's been through it as well. He's experienced heartache. He's experienced loss. And, and I point this all out because once again, Jesus is going to be dealing with this issue of, of difficulty and, and hard times in life and how we can view them with, with an eternal perspective, how we can deal with these things when they come our way. And, and, and I want to note that Jesus knew what he was talking about because he'd been through so many things. And, and it wasn't just, you know, so often when, we, when we're talking with people, the things we share about the Bible, they, they, can be, they can be theoretical sometimes. But this wasn't theoretical for him. This was a very practical topic. He says he understands our weakness and our frailties and our struggles. And, and as we're going to see, sometimes the good and the bad in life, they sort of run together, don't they? It's sort of at the same time, right? I'm healthy right now, but my wife hates me. My wife loves me, but I lost my job. My finances and my marriage are in order, but I've been sick for eight weeks. Right? Usually our lives aren't all good or all bad. Usually it's sort of a, a mixture of the both, kind of running at the same time. And as we get into this passage this morning, Jesus is going to talk about how to deal with the difficulties, how to walk in joy and peace and in blessings, even in the midst of those hard times and those trials and tribulations that come. And once again, I want to remind you before we open up, that, that context is very important in order to understand what Jesus is saying here. Right? If we were just to, to flop the Bible open right in the middle of John 16, 
we wouldn't really get the full context and all of what's happening here. We sort of have to know what's going on. Jesus has already talked about how he's going to be betrayed before very long. And in just a few hours, he's about to be led away to be tortured and crucified. And with that in mind, verse 16 is very clear. It says, in a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, <coughs> and you will see me. Jesus says, in a little while, that in, in, in a couple hours, he would be gone. He would be led away. He would be put to death. And he says to the disciples, look, you're not going to see me. I'll, I'll, I'll be in the grave. But then a little while after that, he says, you will see me again. I'll be rising from the dead in three days. I'll appear to you all again. So some of his disciples said to one another, verse 17, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. You have to feel for the disciples a little bit, I think. Oftentimes, on one hand, it's like, wow, they just didn't get it. But on the other hand, Jesus was kind of cryptic a lot of times, wasn't he? Right? He was kind of, when he would, when he would speak to the disciples, he often spoke in, in riddles and in parables, and he wasn't always explicitly clear when he was speaking with them. And so the disciples, oftentimes, we find them left sort of just scratching their heads. What, what, what did Jesus just say? What, what is Jesus talking about? What did Jesus mean by that? And so it says that they were asking each other, you know, what did he mean? What is he saying? What is he talking about? You, you, you won't see me, and then you will see me. I'm going to the Father. What, what does this all mean? And it's a sort of a funny thing. We see this picture here. The disciples, they're all gathered around asking what Jesus meant. And I think the question here is this. Why didn't they just ask Jesus? Right? We see in the text he's right there with them, isn't he? He's probably sitting at the same table they're sitting at. Or, or he, they, I mean, they're, they're all together. And they're talking about Jesus as if he wasn't in their presence. And, and it's kind of funny. And it's kind of sad, too. And I think that this is what we have a tendency to do so often. We live a lot of our lives like we aren't in the presence of God. We live a lot of our lives like he can't see us, like he can't hear us, like he doesn't know what's going on in our lives. When the reality is he's right here. Wherever we are, he's among us, watching and listening and involved. And, you know, that's cause for great comfort or great concern, isn't it? Okay, depending on how you're living your life today. Right, if you're struggling and seeking after the Lord, the knowledge that he's right there with you, man, that's encouraging, that's comforting. On the other hand, if you're not living how you're supposed to be living, if you're out doing things you're not supposed to be doing, hanging out with people you're not supposed to be hanging out, do, right, and, and, and knowing that he's there with you, that, that can cause a degree of, of consternation. And here's the thing. And you can fool the people that are around you. Or you can fool your family. Or you can fool your friends. 
You can fool your spouses, your kids. You can fool your boss. You can fool me. But you can't fool the Lord. Because he knows. He's ever-present in our lives. And we need to remember that. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be continually, as Brother Andrew says, practicing the presence of God in our lives. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was in their mouths. He knew what they were thinking. And, and so he says to them, you guys are asking yourselves what I meant, that I'm going for a little while, I'll be back soon. He says, truly, truly. And, 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 and that phrase, truly, truly, it means more than, hey, I'm not lying. Right? What he's saying is, is let me tell you an important truth. Let me speak reality about this. Pay close attention, he says. In a little bit, in a little while, he says, you guys are going to weep. You're going to mourn. Your hearts are going to be broken over what's about to happen to me. You'll be filled with, with an unbearable grief tomorrow morning. He says, suddenly, your grief will be turned into joy. And this is prophetic, isn't it? Remember what happened on Resurrection Sunday. John chapter 20 and 21, right? The, the disciples, they were broken. They were in mourning. They were weeping. But then they encounter the resurrected Lord. And we see that mourning turned into joy when Jesus appeared to them. And they forgot all about the cross, didn't they? They forgot all about the suffering after they encountered the risen Lord. And Jesus says in verse 21 that it's going to be like this. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. When a woman is having a baby, all kinds of yelling going on, cursing of the husband, right? all, all these kind of things are going on. Why did you do this to me? Right? And, and there's a, a tremendous amount, not to stress you out, Michelle, or anything. <laughs> there's a, a, a tremendous amount of pain involved in childbirth, from what I understand. Right? But as soon as the mother is holding that little baby in their arms, those months of mourning sickness are forgotten, aren't they? Having to go pee every nine seconds is forgotten. All those nights of not being able to sleep while you were pregnant, all those contractions, all the horrible pain that they just went through, it, 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 it's all forgotten. It's all worth it when they see the final result, the prize, right? When they have that little baby wrapped up and placed into their arms, all the other stuff is forgotten. The mother isn't thinking about that pain. They're not thinking about the labor. They're just thinking about that little human that just popped out of them. And Jesus says, look, that's what this is like. That's what the Christian life is like. He says, you might be in sorrow right now. You might be in trials. You might be in hard times. 
But when the reward comes, when Christ is revealed in your life, you're not even going to remember the trial. You're not even going to remember that pain and that heartache. You're just going to rejoice in the, in the refinement. You're going to rejoice in the change. You're going to rejoice in how those things drew you closer to the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what Paul is saying is this, church. He says we don't give up. He says it's true that that we're dying on the outside. It's true that we're wasting away on the outside. But he says our spirit, the inner man, is being renewed day by day. And and he calls our troubles and and our pain and our trials, but a light, momentary affliction. It doesn't feel like that, does it? When you're in the midst of it, when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like a, a light, momentary affliction. But Paul says, in reality, our present troubles are small, and they won't last long. And you say, what? It's been years. I've been struggling with this for years. This is a a huge issue in life. I feel like this is one of the defining factors of my life. But Paul here is giving us a little perspective. And in fact, he says, look at guys, the the bigger the problem, the better. How many of you guys ever feel that way? Yeah, give me a bigger problem. Make life more hard. Just pile it on, Lord. Give me seconds. Paul says, here's the reality. These afflictions produce a glory in our lives. And that glory outweighs the trial. That glory lasts eternally. And so Paul says, look, guys, you need to start to to see the bigger picture. You you guys, you need to to, to start to, to play the long game. You need to develop this eternal perspective. Don't look at what you see, Paul says. Look at the unseen. Don't look at the, and I like how the ESV translates this. He says, don't look at the transient, right? Those things that are just passing away, those things that are just passing through, those things that are, that are here today and gone tomorrow. He says, keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes heavenward. Focus on the eternal. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, I get it. You're going to be sad when you see me hanging on that cross. You're going to be heartbroken. You're going to be devastated when you see me die. He says, but when you see me resurrected, when you see me come back to life, You're going to be filled with great joy. And you're going to be so filled with joy. And he says, no one's going to be able to take that joy away from you. 
And the principle here is life comes at us hard sometimes. Life wants to knock us down sometimes. We all have these issues that are, that are, that are pressing in on us, that are pressing down on us. We have broken relationships, and we have health issues, and we have financial issues, and we have emotional issues, and, and we have depression, we have anxiety, we have all these things. And sometimes it's easy to feel hopeless and to get filled with, with despair and doubt and grief. But when we're able to take our eyes off of the present, and we're able to look towards the future. When we set our eyes on the resurrected Lord. Jesus says we'll be filled with a joy that, that goes beyond our circumstances. We'll be filled with a joy that goes beyond our world. We'll be filled with this joy that, that circumstance can't affect. The joy that the world and all of its issues can't touch. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I want to make a point here with this verse. You know, I've talked about this many times, the issues I have with prosperity teachers and prosperity teachers and so much of the Christianity that we see portrayed on TV, this ask and you shall receive mentality where it's just like you unfold this Christmas list to Jesus. And I believe that's very clearly misrepresenting what Jesus was saying. And I think that we as conservative evangelical Christians, sometimes we, we underappreciate what Jesus is saying here. And I think sometimes we're so reticent to get caught up in that whole name it and claim it, blab it and grab it type theology that we, that we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and we fail to lay hold of the promises of God. We fail to ask for the things that we should be asking for. We fail to go to him and make our petitions known. We fail to ask him to provide for our basic needs. Right? Matthew chapter 6, what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Right? Jesus gives us this, this wonderful model of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And, and he says, pray like this. Pray after this fashion. And at one point he says this. He says, give us our daily bread. Jesus says, look, you should be going to the Lord and asking him to take care of you. Asking him to provide for you. Let your needs be known. Jesus says here, you have not because you ask not. I think sometimes in matters of finances, in matters of relationships, in matters of health, we need to go before the Father and let our needs be known to him. Like, like Paul says in Philippians 4, Right? Let your requests be made known to God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, look, if, you're, if your kid comes and he asks for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. Right? If your son comes and asks for a piece of toast, you don't give him a scorpion. 
She says, look, you as an earthly father, you know how to take care of your kids. Don't you think the heavenly father knows how to, how to take care of his kids? I think sometimes we, we, we do ourselves a, a disservice by not letting our needs be made known to the Lord. Right? He already knows what we need. He's just waiting for us to ask. He's waiting for us to seek him so that he can answer us. And there's nothing as, as joyful as seeing the Lord move, seeing the Lord answer your prayers. And it's not just because you get what you needed. Woohoo! I got money to pay my electricity bill. All right, that, that, it's more than that. It's because when the Lord answers your prayers, you see that he's moving. You see that, that he's at work in your life. heard my request. God, God listened to me. God took time to respond to me. He, he's, he knows the details. He knows the things that I'm going through. He cares that much about me. And, and when the Lord answers our prayers, it has this effect of, of building us up in our faith. I have said these things, verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus says, listen, fellas, listen, guys, I know I haven't always been totally clear. I know I haven't always been totally transparent when we talk. I know I spoke in parables. I know I used a lot of illustrations that you didn't always get right away. But from here on out, it's going to be very straightforward. I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to know. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is an interesting couple verses here. Jesus says, look, in essence, when you ask me, but you're not really asking me. You're asking the Father in my name. But he says, soon you can go directly to the Father. Soon you, you, you'll have direct access to God. And I want you to understand something here. At this point, right, even the disciples, right, they still went to the temple. Right, they still engaged in, in, in the temple sacrifices. Right? They still had to bring an animal, and the priest would, would, would slit the throat of that animal, and it would shed the blood to cover their sin. At this point, there was still a priest that, that mediated between God and man. But after the death and burial of Jesus Christ, all that changed. Remember, Scripture says that in the temple, there was this, this veil in there that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And extra-biblical sources tell us that this, that this veil, this piece of fabric, was about 60 feet tall, about 30 feet wide, and according to the Talmud, it was the thickness of a man's hand. That's a big piece of material. And as I said, it separated men from entering into the presence of God. And you remember, once a year, the high priest was able to go behind that veil and make sacrifices on behalf of the nation there in front of the Ark of the Covenant. 
But on that day that Jesus died, remember, Scripture teaches that that veil was torn in half. That it was torn from, from top to bottom. And, and it's not as if, you know, man were finally able to, to storm that veil and break it down and tear it down. It says that it was torn from top to bottom. Symbolically showing us that it was God who tore that veil. It was God who broke down that veil. It was God who broke down that separation between lost men and himself. And now mankind, us, through the death of Jesus Christ, have free access to the Father. Because of Jesus Christ, we can go directly into the presence of the Father. <coughs> Note the beginning of verse 27. The Father himself loves us. The New Living Translation says, the Father dearly loves me. And that's a comfort to me. That I'm dearly loved by God. And he says, like the Father, he looks down from heaven and he sees you. And his heart is, is filled with love. And I think as, as parents, we can begin to understand what Jesus is talking about here. I see my kids, especially when they're asleep, and they're I, I think I shared a couple weeks ago that Eva, my little five-year-old daughter, she's taking to, to sleeping in the baby's crib, kind of breaking it and getting it ready for her. And, and I walk in there, and I see her all cramped up, snuggled up in that little crib, fast asleep. And I look at her, and, and my heart is just filled with so much joy and love. Sometimes I, and I look at my kids, and I just feel like, man, my, my heart just wants to explode. I feel like, and I would do anything for my kids. I would do anything that my kids needed to protect them and provide for them and to take care of them. And, and I think as, when we begin to experience that as parents, we begin to get a brief insight into, into the heart of God for us. That love that we have for our kids, that's like the love that the Father has for us. Times a hundred, times a thousand, times a billion, right? That that. He looks at us and his heart is just so filled with love. And, and, and we, we're able to love because God is love. Right? And that love that he has for us enables us to share that love to other people. In verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The disciples say, finally, we understand you, Jesus. Finally, we, we have no more need to question you, Jesus. <laughs> Look what they say next. They say, this is why we believe you came from God. Really? It wasn't the turning the water into wine. It wasn't the raising the dead. It wasn't the walking on the water. It wasn't calming the stormy sea with his voice. It wasn't feeding the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread and a little fish. This is what made them believe finally, huh? But this is interesting. On one hand, miracles are cool, right? They, they, they boost our faith. But it's the voice of God speaking truth directly into our hearts 
that's what really causes us to believe. Signs and wonders and miracles, those things are cool. But it's his word that changes us. It's the voice of God speaking into our lives that, that transforms our hearts. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus says, oh, you guys believe now. That's good. By this time tomorrow, he says, you're going to be scattered, each one of you hiding in your bedroom. Each one of you is going to go your own way. Each one of you is going to abandon me. How do you react when hard times come? Interesting how often hard times come and we we run away from the Lord. Difficulties in life come, struggles come, and we just want to hide out at home. We don't go to church, we don't go to Bible study. We run in the opposite direction that we should be running. It's 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 interesting. It's funny to me that the very moment that I should be running very moment that I should be running to fellowship with my brothers and sisters, I want to just hide out in home instead and watch reruns of Star Trek or something. Jesus says, look, tomorrow, hard times are going to come, and you're going to go hide. You're going to run away. You're going to But Jesus says, it's okay. It's all good because the Father is going to be with you. And that's another important point. When hard times come, when everyone else runs away from us, when everyone else abandons us, when our friends, when our family, when those who are supposed to love and support us run away, Jesus says we still have the Father. And he's always with us. And he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. And he never abandons us. I have said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think that this verse here is sort of the, the crown jewel of this passage. Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples. He says, look guys, hard times will come. Without question, undoubtedly, for sure, he says. You're going to have tribulation. Here on this earth, in this fallen, corrupt, broken, sinful place, you'll have many trials, many sorrows. And life is hard, and it's just, that's just reality for everyone. Rich or poor, we all deal with loss. We all deal with tragedy. We all deal with, with heartbreak and emotional distress. Walking with the Lord, we also face persecution and trials and tribulations and, and various things and forms. Life isn't easy. As Dread Pirate Roberts said, anyone who says differently is selling something. And, and we all know this to be true. But here's the good news. Do you see what Jesus says? But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. He says, life is hard, but don't stress about it. The world might be beating you down right now. 
but take heart. Don't despair. Take courage. He says, be of good cheer. Why? Why should I be of good cheer when it feels like the world is, is swamped? Why should I be of good cheer when it feels like I'm, I'm struggling to stay afloat? Why should I be of good cheer when I'm, when I'm barely able to tread water? I'm barely to keep, able to keep my nose above the water line. She says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer because even though there's still hard times and difficulty, the battle has already been won. And we need to understand that. Jesus has already won, that Jesus has already overcome the world, that he's already defeated the enemy. We looked last week at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says that, that, that Satan bit the heel of Jesus, but Jesus crushed his head in the process. Seems like Satan is still at work, though, sometimes, doesn't it? You ever killed a snake? Chopped off a snake's head? I grew up a lot of my childhood in southern Oregon and southern California, and we'd go rattlesnake hunting a lot, and we'd go out at nighttime, we had these little 22s, and we'd tape flashlights on the end of them and uh, put snake shot in them. And we'd go out driving on the highways after night, because the this isn't even my notes, I don't know why this popped into my head. But, but at nighttime, the, um, the blacktop gets hot. And, you know, everything else cools down, so the snakes hang out. So we drive around till we see them, and we hop out, and we go rattlesnake hunting. And after you chop off the snake's head, they flop around for quite a while. There's still a lot of moving around that goes on. And, and I think that, that this is the same idea here. Satan has been defeated at the cross. He's already doomed. He's already been judged. His fate is sealed. He's just, he's just twitching a little bit now. Right? He's just moving around, doing what he can. We need to understand that. We need to remember that the victory has already been won. Jesus has already defeated the enemy. And sure, we're still engaged in battle, but we're fighting from this position of victory. We're just doing the mop-up work, so to speak. The enemy has no real power in our lives anymore. We talked about this last week. The only power the enemy has over our, us the only power the enemy can exert over us is power that we give him. Because his authority has been broken. The enemy's access point to our lives was sin. And since our sin has been forgiven, that access point has been cut off. And he has no more right to our lives. He has no more access to our lives unless we give it to him. We need to understand that. Right, the only real power that that old serpent has is the power that we give him. Right, Satan, the devil, old Slewfoot, he's been defeated. He's been judged. He's been crushed. He's been crushed by the heel of Jesus. That, that victory has already been won at Calvary's cross. And we need but, but lay a hold of that victory. And, and here's the deal. And this is what's so crucial for us to understand. God will always judge sin. By his very nature, God is bound to judge sin. Because he's a holy and righteous and just God, he will always judge sin. 
The only question is this. Will your sin be judged at the cross? Or will it be judged in here? Those are the options. Will Jesus pay for your sin? Or will you pay for your own sin? I know I've said this many times before. You know, but we've all heard evangelists say something to this effect. You know, your, your sins are too great. You can never pay the debt of your own sin. And that's simply not true. I can pay for my own sin. Each one of us can pay the cost of our own sin. But at what cost? At the cost of our eternal souls in hell. That's the cost if we choose to pay for our own sin. On the other hand, Jesus already paid the cost of our sin when he was nailed there to that cross at Calvary. All sin will be paid for without question. God is just and sins must be paid for. But God is love. And he paid for those sins himself. He paid for those sins through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So the question is, will your sins be paid for by the cross, by Jesus, or by yourself? I encourage you guys, let Jesus pick up the check. Let him cover that. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you did pick up the check. That you paid the cost for us. That you died so that we wouldn't have to. That you went to the cross so we wouldn't have to spend eternity separated from you. And Father, I just pray for anyone who, who doesn't know you're here this morning, that you would just speak truth into their lives. And that you would draw them into yourself. And Father, I just pray for the rest of us as we, as we leave, Lord, and we go back out into the world and we just face all the trials and all the things we're going through, that you would strengthen us. And that you would encourage us more than you would remind us of the victories already to have. We ask these things in your name.